My name is Matt Moran. Many of you probably heard or know that, uh, that I graduated recently. Yes, I, along with, along with several others in the church, recently graduated. I got my master's degree from Gordon-Conwell. And upon hearing, thank you, upon hearing that news, some of you, mostly, mostly those of you who haven't known me for very long, congratulated me very, very kindly and pleasantly. Thank you. Some of you who have, no, who have known me a little bit longer smiled and congratulated me as well, but also looked at me kind of quizzically, kind of, the way, kind of the way that you would look at me if I told you that from now on I wanted to, you to refer to me by my middle name. And I did, I did kind of see that unspoken question in your eyes that said, you graduated? You weren't, you weren't done yet? <laughs> and those of you who know me best just laughed and laughed. My younger brother also graduated this month from law school uh, down in St. Louis, Missouri. And he texted me and said, congratulations. And then he said, I think I was a sophomore in high school when you started. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if that's actually true. I don't have the motivation to check on the actual details, but just... Just me say, just the, the plausibility of that gives you some idea of how long it took me to get that degree. It was, it was a lot of trouble. It was a lot of paper. It was a couple different apartments. It was one house. It was a couple kids. It was a couple part-time jobs. It was several of those WDs on your tra- transcript. It was a bunch of credits that in the end didn't count towards a degree. It was a lot of work. The author Stephen King once wrote when he finished his undergraduate degree from the University of Maine, he said that it felt sort of like a golden retriever emerging from a pond with a dead duck in its, hand, in its jaws. And when he wrote that, I thought, that's me. It was dead, all right. <laughs> but a lot, a lot of our work is like that. Much of our work is could honestly be described as being a lot of trouble. So your work could be pastoring a church, it could be writing a book, it could be solving a complex legal problem, it could be trying to complete a construction job. And a lot of times you're sort of wrestling with that work that is ambiguous and it's not clear-cut, it's messy, it takes a long time, and you want it to be perfect, but really the best that you can do is just kind of wrestle into some semblance of order. Once in a great while we have the satisfaction of completing something, beginning a project, setting a goal, and completing every last detail of it on budget, on time. And if you've been there, you know that there's immense satisfaction in that. There's this understanding that it's okay now to stop and have the cold drink of your choice and enjoy the moment because of everything that you've accomplished. But for most of us, those moments in our work are fleeting. Our work piles up, we feel like there's always more to do, and for most of us, physical rest, sleep, and even more, like a soul rest, that's fleeting, and we find it hard to rest whenever we feel like there's more to do. It's hard to rest unless we feel like we've earned it, and even then, we find our rest to be missing that like deep soul satisfaction. How many of you have known friends who 
were about to take a long, sought-after vacation. So maybe it was to Miami or Cozumel or Cancun or the Bahamas or one of those warm-weather places with the blue water that make everyone jealous in the middle of February. And if you're the friend of that person, you, you tend to hear about the expected vacation for a long time in advance. You get a long, pre, extended preview of the vacation. And then finally the day comes and they leave, and you don't see them again for another 10 or 14 days. And when they come back, they look tanned or maybe a little burnt, hopefully not, sometimes even a little orange. And, but they often look a little bit dazed and frenzied. And you say, how was the vacation? And they look at you with that faraway look, and they're like, oh, it's great. And then they say, it seems so long ago, right? That's always what they say. It seems so long ago. Have you been there? People are dying for rest. We see it all the time. Um, Sometimes you see it in the words that people choose to use, even in conversation. When Laurel and I moved to Melrose a couple years ago, I was struck by how often certain words would pop up in conversation. And they're beautiful, conceptually beautiful words, but I would hear people use words like mindfulness or intentionality or balance or space more than I ever had before. And what's the deeper meaning behind those words? I think there's an implicit acknowledgement there that I'm busy, and I know what it feels like to be totally stressed out and totally anxious, to have that intense pressure, and I don't want to be there. We all need rest, right? Some of you have probably read things by the author uh, David Foster Wallace, who uh, was one of the the most famous uh, 21st century postmodern writers. He wrote a famous essay about his experience as an undercover journalist on board a luxury cruise ship. The essay was called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. And before, before the ship left the coast of South Florida, Wallace went around asking people why they had chosen to go on this ship. Why did they chosen the cruise? And this is what he wrote. He said, the word that gets used over and over in the explanatory small talk is relax. Everybody characterizes the upcoming week on the ship as either a long put-off reward or as a last-ditch effort to salvage sanity and self from some inconceivable crockpot of pressure. People really are dying for rest. So with that in mind, let me tell you about the rest of God. The rest of God that we're going to talk about today in Genesis 2 is not like our rest. I'm going to actually start in the very last verse of Genesis 1, uh, and then read the first three verses of Genesis 2. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So our text at the end of chapter 1 begins at the end of all that God has created. God has completed his creative work and is now surveying everything that he's made. God had said, let there be light, there was light. 
God had separated the water from the earth. God created plants and vegetables. He made animals and every creeping thing. He created fish and birds. Then God creates men and women, and he breathes into them his image, gives them the breath of life. And now he's surveying all that he made, and it says God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Here we get this little snapshot of the triune God looking out over all that he has made. And he says, behold, it was very good. That behold, it's kind of like a word held out to the reader, inviting us into the vantage point of God himself. Do you know how when you're little and your parents take you somewhere, like maybe Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or some, some incredible overlook or vista, and, but you're so small that you can't really grasp what everyone else is looking at. Everyone else is looking out over the horizon and your face is kind of pressed up against the guardrail. And you need someone to kind of take you on their shoulders and let you look out over the, see what everyone else is seeing. Or you need, you know, if it was like the 80s, you'd need someone to put in a quarter into one of those old-fashioned binoculars so that you can actually see the falls or see the Grand Canyon. So someone pulls you up and lets you look. And then for the first time, your five-year-old self, you can see what everyone's looking at. That's what this text is doing for us. This behold is an invitation to the reader to look at the creation from the vantage point of the creator. And God says, it was very, it was very good. I want you to see the satisfaction of God as he surveys his impeccable creation because he's inviting us into it with that word behold. And then when we see the satisfaction of God, we see God's institution of rest. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The text tells us the heavens and the earth were finished. Think about that, finished. No touch-up, no paint job, no punch list for the carpenter, for the contractor, no final walkthrough, finished, done. I thought about that. Finished is just an amazing word to describe anyone's work. I don't think I could look at any area of my, my work in any area of my life, whether it be the church or the home or the physical works that needs to take place on the house or my parenting or really anything and say, yeah, it's finished. I can't think, I don't even know what that would feel like. There's not a single area of my life where I would say, I'm finished. And I'm even one of those like fanatics that keeps their email inbox at zero because my mind craves the thought of being finished. But we all know that that lasts for like an hour, maybe. God has created, but his creation is not like ours. God does something perfect and then He's finished. So in our, in our work, we live in a world where we have deadlines coming, so ready or not, it's got to be done, so we ship it out the door, and then we live with the consequences. The creator God has just created the universe, but he did it perfectly and completely. It was finished in one take. And then on the seventh day, God builds in this rhythm of rest. A day in the week of rest. 
So why did God rest from his work? He wasn't tired then, and he is not tired now. The Bible says that God is, even now, upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is not fatigued. God created effortlessly. It wasn't hard for him. If you've ever seen the, the movie Goodwill Hunting, there's a scene where Matt Damon is sitting in a classroom, you know, and if you know the movie, he's an untrained mathematical genius, and he's sitting there while MIT professors are putting up complex math equations on the board, and then he just answers them in seconds. And they stroke their chin, and they think about different scenarios, and they talk amongst themselves, and meanwhile, Matt Damon is just solving everything they put up there. And then finally he says, do you know how easy this is for me? This is a joke. So minus the contempt, that was the ease with which God created the universe. It was not hard for him. He didn't rest because he was fatigued, because he'd just been putting in long days. So why did he bless the seventh day and make it holy? Why does God rest? God rests for us. God rests for fellowship. God created us in his image. God created men and women in the image of God and put them in a perfect garden. He was the one seeking fellowship, and he designed us to know him. This is why God created the seventh day. It's to remind us that we are his. God knew our propensity for independence, for autonomy, to go our own way. He knew our deep desire to try and seek life apart from him and prove our self-sufficiency. So he instituted into the week the day of rest. It was for us. The rest of God was not because he was tired or he needed a break. It was for us. So let me develop this a little bit further. Later on, after the Genesis account, rest on the Sabbath became a peculiar characteristic of the people of God, beginning when the Israelites were freed from Egyptian slavery. So long as they were in slavery to the Egyptians, they were perpetually working, perpetually producing, under the rule of, a, under the rule of tyranny, only valued because of their productivity. Then God miraculously delivers them out of Egyptian slavery. And the fourth commandment underlines this command to, to rest. Let me read this in Exodus 20. This is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and it is rooted in the creation account. God is telling his people, his covenant people, remember the Sabbath day, meaning this seventh day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. So Exodus, with the covenant people of God, uses the creation language of Genesis to say that the seventh day is a day set apart. It's a blessed day. It's a holy day. This is where the word Sabbath is introduced. When we say Sabbath, we're talking about Sunday, right? The day the seventh day, the day that we call Sunday. But for many people, Sabbath has been associated with restriction, 
different legalities associated with what you can and cannot do on Sunday, and then eventually it's been ignored. What God is telling the Israelites here is to rest because you've been delivered out of slavery. They were resting in the acknowledgement of what God had accomplished for them, not because of their work or what they had accomplished. They'd been delivered miraculously by God. Their rest had been earned for them by God. Their rest is not in light of what they had produced. It had been earned for them by God. And the pattern of work and rest is demonstrated throughout the story of Israel. And simultaneously, Israel's story is littered with stories where the Israelites are determined to prove their self-sufficiency. So they're delivered by slavery from God, and then now you have hundreds of thousands of people in the wilderness. God provides for them with food falling out of the sky, food that we call manna. Manna, bread from heaven, drops from the sky, just enough for each day. What what do the Israelites want to do? Well, how long could that miracle last? Got to gather extra, right? Got to put in, put in extra, like get an extra supply of bread. That stuff turns to worms. It rots in their hands if they take extra. So be, they begin to realize you can only gather enough for each day. Then on Saturday, the people are told, gather for two days. It won't rot. So they can rest on the Sabbath. God says, I will make a double portion fall from the sky. That bread isn't going to rot overnight. It will, still be in the, it will still be good in the morning. But that's hard for the people to believe. They've already seen what happens when they go and gather extra during the week. So they still go out there with their baskets, right? Nothing's there. Because God has designed the Sabbath so that we rest from our work and we trust in his. The Sabbath is the day that we turn from toiling with creation, turn, for, turn from the results of creation, And we turn to the mystery, the one who has created us. God knew that we have a deep need to prove ourselves, a deep need for significance. And rest is hard. We usually feel like we need to earn it. We need to be accomplishing something. And we become restless when we aren't getting anything done. Many years later, when the Jewish people were eventually brought under Roman occupation, it was actually thought by the Romans that they were lazy people because of their strict rules about Sabbath observance. Only later, eventually, hardworking cultures realize that there's something restorative about stopping work, that working all the time actually limits or restrains your effectiveness. But the Israelites knew that our identity does not come from our work or only from what we've accomplished. It comes from the one who has worked for us. When we cease from our work, we're acknowledging there is one who has worked on our behalf. Remember earlier when I said, when God surveyed his creation, he saw that it was finished. When do we see that word finished again? We see it in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. John 19 tells us that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he had received the sour wine, a last fulfillment of prophecy, that he looked up at heaven and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. It was finished. His work was done. 
it was complete. It was satisfied. God the Father worked effortlessly on our behalf in creation. Jesus the Son, in His humanity, worked harder than anyone has ever worked, but He worked flawlessly on your behalf. And when He accomplished redemption, it was done. Just like creation was completed and when it was done, it was finished, so it is with our redemption. The work of Christ on the cross is finished forever and for all time. And when we rest, we are not resting because of our work. We are resting in His. We are invited in the Sabbath into the everlasting rest of the one who has already worked on our behalf. All through Genesis 1, we see a familiar refrain, right? When God separates the heavens from the earth, then the text says there was morning, there was evening the first day. When God separated light from darkness, you hear there was morning, there was evening the second day. When God separates the land and the sea, you hear the morning and evening refrain. Six times through the creation narrative, you hear morning and evening the first day, the second day, the third day. We, hear, we see it six times. But on the seventh day, there's no refrain. There's no morning and evening. Why is that? It's because the seventh day continues. The morning-evening refrain is not there. The rest of God carries on. It's still held out. There is a rest, like the, like the author of Hebrews says, there is a rest for the people of God. God is still offering fellowship and a place where there is no more striving, where we rejoice in the one who has worked for us. We rest in the one who has accomplished our redemption. Usually we think of rest simply as a break from our toil. And we acknowledge, like, like pagan cultures eventually came to, that there is a certain degree of effectiveness that comes when we take time off. This is much deeper than that. This is a rest that comes out of our identity as people who belong to God. So how do we enter into the rest of God? I want to do a little bit of application. I want to talk, finish by talking about the real tangible handles that we can develop, where we can develop hearts and homes where we rejoice in this day that God has made, given us. So two things that I would say real broadly. We need to change the way that we think about God and the way that we think about time. But let me be specific about that. We need to change our orientation Godward and timeward. First, when I say Godward. So theologically, we claim that God is sovereign, that he knows all things and is in complete control. However, our work, our restlessness, our, the unceasing, unceasing hamster wheel in our brain, our compulsions do not always back up our theological statement that we believe God is sovereign. So when you sleep, when you set aside a day to rest, to delight yourself in God, to worship, you are implicitly saying God is sovereign. God is in control. I can take my hand off the wheel. Right at the beginning of the service, Matt read from us, Matt read from Psalm 46, the psalm that we read earlier. And in that, there's the, that famous line, be still and know that I am God. But when the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God, he's not talking about some sort of yearly contemplative retreat where we go into the woods and like center in on who God is. As great as that might be, 
Psalm 46 is about God's rule over chaos and his enemies. In the midst of a storm, in the midst of distractions, in the midst of tumult, we can still know he is God. That's pr- resting is practicing the sovereignty of God. Being still and knowing that he is God is delight in God's triumph over his enemies, his control over chaos, his all-sufficiency to bring his purposes to pass. Because God is sovereign, we can rest. And really, if he is not, then we need to get busy and go back to working. And secondly, I said we need to change our orientation timeward. This requires some, th- some thoughtfulness. Most of what you might, we might look at and say, wow, that's very intricate or legalistic, that we know about, say, old-fashioned Sabbath keepers, whether your image of Sabbath keeping is from Orthodox Jews or 18th century Puritans or Little House on the Prairie, um, involves like a lot of turning off of lights and lighting of candles and a lot of strict rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Um, but the, the wisdom, that, I'm, not, not, I'm not encouraging us to go back to that, but the wisdom that was in those cultures and practices is a realization that to stop working or to actually rest, we need to do more than just stop working. Okay, we all know this, that that is not a flip that you can switch to just go from stop working to resting. Um, people that have practiced Sabbath over the years know that this is, a, that this is a, something that takes intentionality. So many of the rituals associated with Sabbath from other communities or cultures do acknowledge that we can't just downshift all that easily. We need to figure out how we're going to rest from the anxiety and strain of our work, which is often a rest from our attempts to justify ourselves, to gain the money or the reputation or the identity that we think we have to have. Avoiding overwork requires a really deep rest in God's finished work. And this affects the way that we think about time. So we all know that in our culture, time is seen as a commodity, time is money, time needs to be captured and trapped and utilized for the most utilitarian good. That's a lot of what our work is. At the same time, Christians believe that we are citizens of eternity, that we are created for worship and fellowship with God. So on the seventh day, we turn from wrestling with creation to looking up at the, crea- at the Creator. God has made us for fellowship with Him. There is a time to turn back from wrestling with the created world and turn towards the one who has created us. If we think that time is only for productivity, our orientation timeward is missing something. We should be, and I know this is a strong statement, but we should be people who deeply believe that we have all the time in the world. And this connects back with what I said about God being sovereign. If God is in control, then you and I have all the time that we need to do all that he has called us to do. If God is in control, then we have all the time that we need to do all that he has called us to do. We need to rest from the anxiety and the strain of our overwork. And trust in the one who has called us into his rest. So let me give you an example of this, okay? 
whenever I catch up with someone that, say, a, a friend that lives out of state that calls me, that's not, that's not so connected with me that he knows great questions to ask or knows exactly what I'm doing, how does that conversation usually go? It goes something like this. He says, how's it going? And then I say, oh, good, busy, really busy, right? So what, I, what am I doing? Okay, I'm saying two things with that. One, I know we haven't talked in six months, but don't be thinking that I'm not doing anything important. And then two, don't be thinking you can keep me on the phone forever, right? Those two things. It's like, I'm doing important things, and you can't waste all my time. I need to believe that I'm not busy. I have all the time that I need. If God is in control, I have all the time that I need. So I, do, I don't believe that my intention today was not to prescribe very specific Sabbath practices to all of you, because I do believe that Jesus says clearly that the Sabbath is made for man, that we center in on worship of God and rest and renewal. But I'm going to share with you personally my time in this, how that, how that has impacted some practices that I want uh, myself and my family to be able to practice, to downshift into rest. The first one is, so I realized this recently, some of you might not know, there's actually a button on your phone that if you press it and hold, it'll turn off. <laughs> okay? It will actually shut off. Okay? What if you took 24 hours, okay, I'm being crazy now, to shut off your phone? The second thing that I decided to do is really make an actual spiritual discipline of stopping, of, to stop saying that I'm busy. All that is doing is my attempt to prove to other people that I don't have a lot of time for them and that I'm doing really important things. Okay? And the third thing is, uh, I think sometimes we can get off track in our Sabbath practices when we start, having, start asking a lot of questions about what is and is not permissible on the Sabbath. I've been encouraged in this time in, the, in my study to make a really positive decision about what the Sabbath is for. In other words, if we say as a home, Sabbath is going to be for worship of God and rest and recreation and fellowship with the people of God, that is going to define what we're doing on Sunday. Then two things, I don't have a lot of time for other things, but that those big priorities are going to influence how I make any other decisions related to Sabbath. I'm acknowledging today that rest, sound, like that there are complications around life stage or around job situations that make this complicated. I'm choosing specifically not to address them here. If you want to talk about that more, I would be happy to because it's not that I don't have thoughts, it's that it wasn't worth getting into. Um, but I want us to see primarily today the beauty of God's design for Sabbath. We serve a God who created us for rest. He actually calls us into it, not just from our work, not just a day off, but a rest into his perfect satisfaction in his creation and with his redemption. For the Christian, each week is really like a mini pilgrimage through toils and snares to the Sabbath, to the worship of God, and to fellowship with his people where we gather, when we worship him, we enjoy him. How we rest is actually a statement of what we believe. It's a statement of future hope. It's joy in what God has done. It's joy in his finished work. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you sustain us, that you are even now upholding the universe by the word of your power. Thank you that you call us into your rest, and we pray that we would rejoice and revel in that as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.